Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. Those questions are, are consulates well-staffed to handle increased student demand this summer? Second, what do we do with documented dreamers in the United States? And third, how bad are new international student enrollments down under? We'll answer these three questions and more today live on the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. Thanks everybody for joining me today for this live chat where we'll be discussing these three questions we've been hearing from international educators. And like we do each week now, we are live on our YouTube channel for SMIE Consulting, our Facebook page for the same, as well as our Twitter feed, and here on LinkedIn uh, from my profile for Marty Bennett. So we appreciate you taking the time to be a part of our conversation this week on some topics that are uh, really hot topics uh, in our industry as we get ready for the NAFSA conference next week. I know many of us of the 6,000 plus attendees are looking forward to meeting together again in person for the largest international ed gathering in the United States each year. Uh, it's three years since we met in person in Washington DC in 2019 uh, for NAFSA. So it's gonna be really a, a pleasure to be back in that expo hall. Uh, and meeting with all of our partners and existing partners, uh, future partners, uh, and seeing what new opportunities are out there uh, in, in our field. So thank you for those of you who have commented on that and are looking forward to uh, connecting at NAFSA this, this next week. Uh, we're all uh, eagerly looking forward to those renewed friendships. Uh, and as we do each week, uh, those of you who are new to the Roundup, uh, we do take our stories that we cover in these questions each week from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays. Uh, if you're subscribed to it through our newsletter uh, at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe, uh, you'll be able to get uh, subscribed to our newsletter that way. Uh, then if you also want to see a copy of uh, this past week's edition, dropping two versions in the chat on our YouTube channel, as well as our Facebook page and later on on LinkedIn uh, for this most recent edition uh, on are subscribing through our newsletter as well as our uh, link, LinkedIn version of that new, same newsletter that comes out around 8.30 every Monday morning. So we're happy to be providing these free resources to our clients, to future, uh, 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 to future uh, partners of ours that we might be connecting with at upcoming events. It's a free resource we make available to the international education community, just sharing our thoughts. Uh, the newsletter is obviously that highlights our quick takes on uh, the top news stories of the day, and we go in-depth into three or more of those themes that come out of those, the newsletter on our roundup here on Wednesdays. So uh, what we're going to do is jump right into our first question, and this is the question uh, for those of you who are uh, regulars in, under, in international education circles, uh, in international admission circles in particular, uh, you're wondering about, hey, um, we've seen boom, uh, significant increases in applications over the last year and are hoping for a bumper crop, crop of new students coming to our campuses this fall, but we're a little bit uncertain about the visa situation uh, in the ver various countries where these students will be coming from. Uh, we know our colleagues at Brighter Ed had done, uh, regularly been updating a series 
uh, uh, con the, they have a running spreadsheet that uh, link lists the current uh, wait times to get student visa appointments. Uh, that I haven't seen a recent update on that. We'll be checking in that in the weeks to come, I'm sure. But uh, we are also uh, hearing stories from the field about how um, really there are some challenges when it comes to staffing uh, at U.S. embassies and consulates around the world where students will have to go, uh, particularly if they are first-time uh, student visa applicants uh, that are first-time visa applicants, they will have to go for an in-person interview. Uh, there are some waivers that have been put in place uh, for uh, those that would be applying for uh, U.S. student visas who had previously been awarded a U.S. visa and as a result had, uh, have got, already gone through uh, a very rigid screening, security screening process in order to get that first visa. And as long as there aren't disqualifying factors, student, uh, individuals who will be applying for student visas that have already had a pre-approved visa, uh, previously approved U.S. visa, they wouldn't have to go for an in-person interview. So that depending on where, what the individual student's background is, obviously those that might be returning to campus this fall that had been, had maybe started their studies online or um, had been enrolled previously but are only this coming fall able to return to the United States, they might have had to renew their visas. So there's a whole group of categories of students uh, that might be going to for visa appointments this summer that are kind of trying to come for the first time or return to the U.S. Uh, to, uh, to, the, to finish their degrees that will be going for visa appointments this summer. So uh, the hope is uh, that consulates and embassies will be fully staffed and be able to uh, to meet the demand of, of the students that will be applying. Uh, the challenge is that's not likely the case, uh, going to be the case in the greater majority countries where uh, the lion's share of students will be coming from. Why is that? Well, uh, as uh, certainly the federal government was not immune to uh, staffing cuts uh, during the pandemic. Uh, as we know on university campuses, uh, international education was a pretty hard hit industry. Uh, part of the higher ed sector that got uh, that saw significant cutbacks and uh, um, uh, reti forced retirements, uh, early dismissals of, in of uh, international education staff uh, that had been really the bread and butter or the working uh, expertise in at most institutions that lost years of expertise and leadership in international education uh, during the pandemic. They were let go. Senior talent was let go and. Their positions were not filled or were filled at a much lower level, uh, if eventually filled at all, if they were at all. So you've seen that similar problems in consulates that are also impacted by, uh, by demand. They were closed for better part of a year in many countries that not able to do, uh, to operate. Uh, we've saw the rigmarole that uh, occurred for uh, employees in China uh, at the U.S. consulates to get back into the country to be able to then uh, uh, resume regular student visa uh, interview services and other non-immigrant visa services, that's, uh, that's a real challenge still uh, in many countries. Uh, a couple of articles that I'll be sharing in the comments section, uh, one in particular uh, was uh, about Bangladeshi students uh, uh, that had, that have been trying to get visas to come to the United States. Uh, there's some significant staff shortages at the U.S. Embassy in, in, um, in Dhaka uh, that, uh, the US, uh, that students have not been able to apply. They now face um, uh, significant wait times that of 600 days or more, uh, even for a student visa appointment. 
Uh, the actual numbers might be lower if, if you know somebody, perhaps, but the, that's a real challenge. Uh, we also see in, um, in India, uh, obviously India has become uh, perhaps a larger sender, uh, certainly for this fall will probably be a larger sender than China. Uh, to the United States, the largest center probably, because China uh, is going to have some, still have some very strict travel restrictions in place by the time August rolls around. Uh, they currently are saying that uh, uh, Chinese citizens need to avoid all unnecessary travel unless it's to resume study, work, or some other resumption of normal activity. Uh, there, uh, basically, that rules out students who will be starting studies. So, so there's a real, there are real question marks that are over the ability, not necessarily of the U.S. Embassy and Consulate to process those visas uh, of students that might be looking to come in the fall, but the reality that they are not going to be allowed to travel at the country if they're still dealing with uh, COVID as poorly as they have done so in the last two months. Uh, with the new variants wreaking havoc with their older protocols that frankly aren't working anymore. Uh, it's left uh, very significant uh, public relations stains on China and that's something they, they do not like. Uh, that's uh, what's happened in Shanghai for the last six to eight weeks and uh, what's happened with international schools in, uh, in China that have been forced to evacuate their, uh, their foreign staff. Uh, that students who have wanted to leave from universities haven't been able to leave. Uh, there's just some real uh, bad things happening in China uh, because of the way the government has, has handled or not handled uh, the latest strains of, of COVID that have uh, caused significant cases to develop, uh, in Chinese terms, significant cases. Uh, we wouldn't uh, probably lose any sleep over the those kind of numbers that they're getting daily in uh, China, but... Uh, that if that were happening in the United States, we'd probably say oh, COVID's done, <laughs> gone and buried. But uh, in China, that zero COVID tolerance policy is uh, still in effect. Uh, but that will be the biggest driver against Chinese students getting to the United States in the fall, uh, or major, any, most major destinations, UK, Canada, Australia as well. But uh, you, you wonder how, whether or not that'll be fixed anytime soon in China. So there's a real, real challenges there. And then in India, we have signs of life. And that's particularly important because we look at uh, the U.S. mission has already committed to uh, beat last year's record of 62,000 student visas issued. That's really intriguing because that record of 62,000 student visas issued in the last fiscal year includes, uh, would have been done at a time when they were uh, about at half capacity in terms of uh, uh, their consular staff for, for conducting visa interviews. So the recent numbers in terms of what the expectations are, uh, the mission has recently added five more visa officers at the Mumbai consulate. They're opening a huge new facility in Hyderabad uh, to accommodate Telangana and, uh, um, and, and Andhra Pradesh uh, students that are applying where a uh, bulk of uh, Indian students coming to the United States will apply through that consulate. Uh, so we see uh, the, that even with the, their, their increases in staffing, they're going to be at uh, what they're calling two-thirds of their pre-COVID capacity for visa processing this year uh, and hope to reach 100% of uh, pre-COVID levels of staffing for U.S. consulate and visa services by the end of 2023. So. 
uh, that, the, that if they able to, they were able to do a record number of student visa interviews with 62,000 uh, at half staff, uh, able to do 62,000 last year, then uh, with two-thirds staff this year, uh, you can expect that uh, that 62,000 number is going to uh, see, some, see some increases uh, over last year. So that's good news for India. Uh, and it will be very much a case-by-case -case basis on staffing levels. In Bangladesh, they're not having that luck, as we pointed out earlier. So we'll see how other countries are impacted, and then we'll follow those stories and share them on our newsletter, and as they gain a critical mass, share them again here on the Roundup. So uh, that will, that's something you need to be aware of. And perhaps, uh, like with the situation uh, in, um, in China, uh, though it's not consular-related, it, it is a potential hazard uh, that you will need to deal with and uh, have communication ready to go to uh, explain to students that were planning to come in the fall uh, that if they're not able to get visas what the process is and fortunately you've had some experience dealing with that over the last two years with the pandemic issues that have uh, impacted international students ability to come to the US. Uh, you may want to be checking in on their programs or intended programs of study about what the online options are if they do want to at least, uh, at least start their studies online, if they can't come directly, uh, they may be willing to do that for a semester or a year until situation improves in China for travel. Uh, that's something we'll need to watch carefully and have a contingency plan in place because if, um, uh, if there's not uh, significant changes to Chinese policy in the next two months, you could very well be looking at zero uh, Chinese uh, students, new students able to get back into the country are able to get into the country for the first time. They might let returning students uh, come back, but uh, new students might not be able to get here. So what's your contingency plan for them? Because uh, you may very well be dealing with these issues sooner rather than later. Because uh, we, we look at the look at these numbers and uh, uh, staffing is gonna be one of those major issues, but you also look at uh, what's happening uh, with NAFSA, like this major International Education Conference happening last next week in Denver. Normally has nine, ten thousand people attending. It's going to be at least a third less than that kind of a pre-COVID uh, peak. Uh, there are, I think, just over six thousand uh, students uh, uh, participants registered for NAFSA next week. And when you can you can search uh, the registrants by uh, by country. And if you look at China and PRC, uh, there I think there are four. Uh, non-Chinese uh, people based uh, that have operations in China that are, are coming from China at least. They might have been already outside the, outside the country. But you have maybe three or four that um, perhaps are Chinese nationals living in China that are able to, are even registered for, for NAFSA. When normally you'd have hundreds of uh, uh, Chinese individuals attending and registering for, for NAFSA. Uh, and China's probably not the only country uh, impacted by ability to travel. Um, potentially expensive travel is certainly a lot more than normal. So uh, there's probably a lot of complicating factors why, why NAFSA isn't going to be as big as it normally is. But looking at uh, China that normally is, has a huge pavilion of study in China, uh, 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 university booths that are part of a larger country pavilion, that doesn't exist this year. Uh, Chinese institutions do not even have individual booths. Uh, it's so you, you're really looking at very slim, um, slim pickings if you're looking to connect with your Chinese partners. Uh, they won't be there, frankly. 
Uh, there's a couple that might uh, have representation that might not have offices exclusively in China. So you, you may, may have some luck you know, for some of the service providers like Sunrise and uh, Sunorbis. Uh, so I uh, don't go with high expectations if you're looking to connect with Chinese partners, I guess would be the advice uh, to to keep uh, forefront in your mind as you prepare for next week. But uh, there's going to be a lot of issues like this that will be impact ability to travel to the U.S. this fall. Uh, if other countries that don't have staffing in the emb their embassies or have, like in China, policies that aren't allowing nationals to travel freely, uh, you have a lot of potential for uh, uh, that needs to be prepared for. So, uh, next on the topic, uh, topics we wanted to cover this week, is a question of uh, a segment of international education um, that very rarely gets the attention it deserves, uh, and these are the documented dreamers. Uh, we know about the, the, the undocumented students that, whose parents came to the United States when, they were, uh, when the, the kids were, were little. Uh, Kids had no decision say in the matter as to whether they come, uh, but the parents came uh, without documentation, uh, without status, and their children, as a, as a result, have uh, suffered in this kind of um, kind of purgatory of uh, statuses in the United States, the undocumented, uh, that they're they've been called the dreamers going back to the Obama administration, uh, that have had certain protections in place uh, that are. Every now and again, we'll get debated and making those permanent. Uh, that hasn't happened for, uh, with any definitive way yet, but there's that's a group that's certainly out there, and there are potentially hundreds and thousands of those uh, students, uh, maybe even over a million, that are impacted that way. Uh, more than that, probably, yeah. Uh, but you also have this group of uh, now what they're called documented dreamers because they have a legal status in the United States. Their parents came to the U.S. initially on work visas, H-1B, uh, L-1, uh, other work, other types of uh, visas that allow for work uh, and, and, um, and uh, dependents to be in the country, spouse and, and children to be in the country with them. Uh, they are, uh, the, the system is set up so that they can stay on their parents' documents uh, and status until they turn 21. And then when they turn 21, regardless of what status the parents are in, unless they've gotten their green cards already as a family, uh, that 21-year-old who might have been a uh, permanent resident applicant in that, in that process, uh, they're not getting them in time, uh, getting uh, made permanent residents in time. And as a result, they, at age 21, they age out of that visa category that they were in or that status that they were in. They have to establish their own status. So for many of them uh, that are 21 years old, they've uh, lived most of their uh, ch childhood in the United States. Uh, they've been dependent on their parents' status uh, at age 21. They might have enrolled for the first two years in university already uh, and been able to qualify for in-state student status. Uh, now those students would be in the situation where they are now uh, documented, but they don't have a, uh, as in they were in the country in, in valid status, but they no longer have that. So many of them switch to uh, back to student status or to student status. Uh, they likely have never been in that. So for that group of students, there are 200,000 of them now uh, that have been here for, the like I said, the majority of their childhood. They've been waiting to get uh, that golden ticket with, the, with their uh, with their, to, uh, to have that citizenship or permanent residency green card taken care of. 
But if they if they if that they don't get that call before they turn 21, they got to start out on their own, uh, start all over again, frankly, uh, and to switch to student status where uh, you may not be able to qualify for in-state rates if you're uh, applying to uh, public institutions. That's a big significant financial chunk because you, uh, you're not eligible for federal financial aid uh, as an F1 student. Uh, you, um, there may be institutional need-based money that might be available for, uh, for students in your position, but uh, depending on your parents' income, you can't file a FAFSA, but you might have a CSS form. So there's a lot of complicating factors for this demographic. Uh, that they're, uh, they, again, they haven't done anything wrong. They were in the country uh, in a legal status, uh, but now uh, at age 21, they have to either switch to student status or get a, a valid status on their own. And um, they obviously, uh, that, that poses uh, some difficult challenges for that group. So 200,000 of them. So um, do your, does your institution have a policy in place? Are you tracking those students say if they have enrolled as undergraduates in the first and second year, uh, are you tracking them in any way to know when they're they're uh, when they turn 21? Uh, if they're in on in the country as an H4 or an L2 or whatever their dependent visa category they might be in, that's not um, student specific. So that's that's something uh, that you might want to think about is uh, tracking those individuals uh, if you can if you can and doing that with the intention of helping them with that transition so you can be in touch before they age out uh, uh, or before their H4 status expires based on their parents' visa status. Uh, our current visas. So those are the things that make make uh, make can make a difference, and in, uh, in terms of the care, the level of care that you're showing for your for your current student audiences. So that's about all we have on the documented dreamers question. There's there's always some of these uh, issues that aren't huge banner uh, public relations. Uh, issues that you're, you're going to see are, are university messages that often get any, any press, but when they do, it just raises the, raises the, uh, the flag that, hey, uh, we need to be prepared for these students in one way or another, uh, uh, and potentially, particularly if uh, most directly as they're those that are already enrolled to, at your institution, are you tracking visa statuses of uh, non- citizens and permanent residents that are on your campus, whether that's asylees, refugees, or the alphabet soup of uh, visa categories that there are. Are you tracking that information? Uh, just so that you can respond uh, when you know these, these time, these date-specific uh, restrictions on visa categories do pop up. So it's just another issue to add to the list of many that uh, we're, we're thinking about every day in our field, or not every day, at least some days in our field. So let's uh, shift gears to our final question of the day, and that is, how bad are new international enrollment numbers down under? Uh, this is a, uh, an interesting one. Um, we hear a lot in the press about uh, the damage done uh, financially during the pandemic. I'll be posting a story that talks about that, what, how, how financially uh, impacted institutions were in Australia uh, during the pandemic. Uh, but the, the article that is most uh, alarming for if you're an Australian institution uh, uh, concerned about international uh, student enrollments is one by Macro Business. And as a disclaimer, Macro Business is, uh, is an outlet that does not typically have um, a lot of positive things to say about uh, universities in Australia that do 
that are heavily engaged in international education. Uh, they s often see it from a business perspective is that uh, you're, you're just treating uh, student, international students as chattel, uh, that uh, they're slave labor for your institutions that, uh, and for your communities, and that uh, it's uh, your uh, the, the that's the money is the only reason that you do that you're bringing these uh, students from abroad in that's the, that's the take that this this outlet macro business has so they don't go into this with a very positive outlook on uh, on international education in Australia but the the numbers that they present are ones that are um, from the Australian Business Bureau of Statistics uh, and they do uh, show kind of what the expectations are for international student arrivals uh, each year uh, in during the during the main entry points uh, during a given year, and those tend to be um, February, March for new international students that are starting a new academic year, which begins February, March in in Australia. Uh, then a larger a la uh, that's the largest group would be in the fall, or excuse me, in their fall, which would be February, March. Uh, then a smaller intake in the, in the fall, uh, our fall, <laughs> their spring in August, September, uh, and, and a couple of the points during the year. So beginning of their summer in, uh, in December, uh, perhaps. Uh, so that is, uh, that's what the, this, these graphs show. And you look at them and you see, oh, con they're consistently going up until the, uh, the end of 2019, uh, beginning of 2020, wherein the drop-off happened. Uh, February, March into 2020, into 19, 2020, 2021. You've seen an uptick in 22 because the borders were closed for the better part of uh, two years in Australia, uh, just reopened in the last six months, six to eight months. Uh, you just see a precipitous drop off, but uh, not even. Uh, not even close to what they uh, were pre-pandemic uh, for February, March. You look at over 240,000 almost in 2019, at uh, the beginning of the year, uh, two, 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 yeah, about 240,000 in 2019. Uh, that was um, uh, less than 113,000 in 2020. And only tw in 2022, only 28,000. Uh, 290 out of so are uh, basically almost less than 80 85 percent drop in new admitted student numbers in the uh, between pre-pandemic highs of t nearly 240 and uh, 280 um, 228,000 as opposed to 240,000 uh, drop from 240 to 28. Uh, in that three-year period. So very significant, uh, very destructive to the international education industry. Uh, they, um, they're, they've, having their borders closed for two years has had a bigger than expected impact uh, on uh, international higher education in Australia. And the likes, likelihood of a swift recovery uh, certainly is not uh, anywhere near uh, where um, where it should be uh, or was pre-pandemic. So uh, Australia's in for, uh, still in, in for a rough ride, but they should bounce back. Uh, they thought they were gonna bounce back quickly in 20, early 2022, but they haven't seen that recovery yet. Uh, but uh, you, uh, I would certainly see, be surprised if we saw similar numbers like that a year from now, or in nine months, beginning of 2023, as they'll all be fully open. 
but the financial impact on campus because of staffing cuts over the over the pandemic that might have been too deep. Uh, you're, you're looking at institutions that are need to rebuild some of that infrastructure internally to um, be able to handle the potential increases of international students that they are going to get. So it's going to be interesting to follow this over the next uh, next few months uh, to see if the uh, situation improves for students that might be starting in the spring uh, in, um, in Australia. But uh, uh, certainly the lessons learned are the longer you're closed, the, long, the more damage you're going to do uh, to, your, to your country's international ed reputation. And uh, Australia is certainly suffering from it. New Zealand has suffered from it. And China is in the midst of uh, and will be suffering for it for years to come, I think, uh, as that will probably be one of the last to reopen fully. So uh, uh, the advice is, if uh, for for those that are concerned about Australia, it's 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 going to be a while before they're they're back to back up to snuff. But uh, they are are going to be fighting hard because it's such an important part of their uh, their mission as as institutions. And uh, there looks like they have, uh, if not federal support, the new elections may provide uh, more support for them uh, with uh, with the Liberal Party coming back in place. Uh, after nine years of uh, conservative national rule. So we'll see what happens there. But certainly, uh, if not the federal level, uh, there certainly are individual states within Australia that are already uh, ramping up their uh, levels of service and uh, funding for institutions to promote their state and their institutions in that state as a destination for international students. So encouraging Western Australia has just committed 41 million Australian dollars to that. So we'll see if others follow suit and what the levels of support look like, and longer term, what the, uh, the, the country's uh, new government's policy is going to be towards international education, perhaps viewed more favorably. We'll see. But that's all we have for you today on the Midweek Roundup. Thank you for making us a part of your weekly international edification, and we look forward to seeing you next week in Denver, in NAFSA, for those that are you that are going. For those that aren't, uh, we're going to be doing a live uh, midweek roundup from the floor, expo floor of the convention center. So I look forward to connecting with you all then live from Denver at NAPSA next week. So until then, have a wonderful week and a good rest of your day. Cheers.